Well, friends, let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, six weeks into our sermon series, The Gospel According to David, and we finally come to David himself. Setting the stage in this story, the situation in Israel between our our last reading and now, between Saul's unlawful sacrifice and now, has continued to deteriorate. Things are getting worse and worse. The relationship between Saul and Samuel has become so fraught that Samuel is legitimately concerned that Saul is going to try and kill him. It's a valid concern as Saul shows himself willing to murder to accomplish his preferred ends. These are dark days in the history of Israel. But in these dark days, the Lord calls his servant Samuel to go and anoint a king of the Lord's own making to be people, to be prince over the people. As we said last week, even in the darkest of times, our Father is always working, always moving to bless his people, even when we can't see it. And sure enough, God's plan is about to be slowly revealed to Samuel and the people of Israel. The new king, the faithful king, King David, is about to be anointed. And yet when we look at our text, as monumental as this moment is in David's life and in the story of Israel, at the center of it all is the father. This story, David's story, is actually the story of our Father in heaven, providentially working out his gracious plan to deliver his people, to set the man of his own choosing over the house of Israel, and to see his people blessed for his glory. Today, we're going to look at how the anointing of David as king reveals how the Lord chooses and empowers a people for the work that he has given them to do. How he orders things for his good ends and purposes and how all of it from start to finish is his work. Let's start by talking about this work that the Lord is doing. What is it that the Lord is doing here? Well, The word that we want to have in mind as we look at this passage is providence. The Lord guiding events to see his ultimate plan accomplished. The Lord comes to Samuel and asks, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Let's stop there for a second. Samuel is mourning over Saul for a couple of reasons here. He's mourning, one, because he genuinely loves Saul. And he wanted to see him do well as king, even though he knew it was not going to end well. He held out hope that the king would be a blessing to Israel. And now that the king has fallen, Israel's future looks looks pretty bleak. Would the nation that Samuel loves and has served so faithfully 
fall apart into social chaos and disarray. And Samuel is mourning because he feels hopeless. His mourning is spurred by hopelessness. And anyone who has ever felt hopeless knows how defeating it is. How it makes everything seem pointless and worthless. Hopelessness is like a virus that attacks our very souls. And it can seem impossible to come out of. With that background in mind, the father's response here can can almost seem cruel. As if he is saying, would you just suck it up, Samuel? Get up and get on with life. But actually, God is teaching Samuel what providence is all about. He's saying, you have a task to do, Samuel. You're going to anoint the next king of Israel. It may seem hopeless, but there is indeed hope because God has already chosen the next king. And even better than just the next one coming, the Lord says, I have provided for myself a king. In contrast to earlier in the book of Samuel, when when the people demand a king and the Lord allows their request, this time, the Lord alone will choose the king. This king will be different. The Lord's words to Samuel here are words of hope. He has been working this whole time. Through Saul, he showed the people the futility of demanding a king apart from the Lord. Through David, he will show them what a faithful king looks like. And it's all the Lord's doing. And to be clear, this is no mere reaction in the moment. This is not the father changing plans midstream because, oops, that first king didn't work out too well. No, in his providence, the Lord has been at work to put David on the throne since before any of the people in this story were even alive. How do we know this? Well, the book of Ruth comes right before the book of 1 Samuel in the Bible. And some of you, thinking back a little bit, I know, a couple years now, some of you might remember our sermon series in Ruth and how that book ends. Ruth 5, chapter 17, says this, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. This him that they're talking about here. This is the the son that is born to Ruth and Boaz and given to Naomi to care for. They gave him a name. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of David. You see, Ruth's story is the story of the Lord moving in history to bring a Gentile outsider into his people Israel. It's a story with twists and turns. It's a story of of sin and then faithfulness, of hopelessness turning into joy. And it ends with this genealogical note that Israel's greatest king would come through the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz. And then, of course, from David's line, we know from the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 that Jesus would come. 
the Son of God, the promised Messiah who sits on the throne of Israel forever. That is how our Father works, providentially setting in motions that, things that, that seem unrelated, that seem inconsequential to accomplish His good and perfect will. Generations before David is born, before Israel even demanded a king, the Lord has set his plan in motion to have faithful Ruth follow Naomi to Israel, to meet Boaz who would love and cherish and protect her, from whom would come their great-grandson David, from whom would come his greatest descendant, Jesus Amazing, gracious providence. The providence of God is a blessing. Now we often miss the blessing because we can't see what he's doing in the moment. Like Samuel, we have eyes for the immediate. But our Lord views things from an eternal perspective. Think about that story I just laid out for you. From Ruth all the way to Jesus. That is eternal perspective in practice. The Father knows how things are going to work out. He knows what life will be like in the moment and the eternal, and He guides it all. And like Samuel, in the moment, we want to know what God's up to. But just like with Samuel, the Lord only gives us enough to take the next step. Samuel is concerned that if he goes to Bethlehem to anoint the son of Jesse, he doesn't even know which son at this point. But if he goes, Saul's going to try to kill him. And so the Lord gives him a plan. Go make a sacrifice. Go and worship. And then I'll tell you what to do next. Take this first step, Samuel. Trust in me as you walk, and then you're going to learn more. That is how the Lord guides us. He lets us know that he's in control. He lets us know that things will end well, right? As Christians, we know that things are heading toward the return of Christ and the time when death and sin and suffering will be no more. We know it ends well. But in the day-to-day, the Father only gives us enough to take the next step, enough that we might follow him by faith and not by sight. It's how he works. His providence tells us that everything's going to go well, and then he reveals providentially what he is doing to us, moment by moment. Now, of course, we ask the same question as, as Samuel does of God, right? How am I supposed to do this? Right? How can I follow when all of these barriers seem to be in place? How can I go to the son of Jesse when Saul might kill me? What am I going to do? How are you going to make this happen, God? We ask the same questions. How, Father, are we to be the church in a time when we can't gather? How are we to worship you when we're all in our own homes? How are we supposed to move forward during a pandemic? We want the whole picture right now. Because deep down, we want to walk by sight and not by faith. I get it. But the thing is, if the Lord allowed that, He knows we wouldn't follow Him for much longer. We would trust in our own doing and not in the providential hand of God. And so as with Samuel, He calls us to follow Him and trust Him each step of the way. 
Now, what a time for us as a church to learn this lesson again, to hear of it again, in a time where we are asking questions of the Lord about where he's leading us, about what he's doing here at St. Aidan's, here in Windsor. A time where we are trying to figure out day by day how to be his church. And the call is what it always is. One of my favorite words, I say it all the time, the call is faithfulness. Will we trust in the Lord each and every day? Will we trust Him each step of the way? Friends, He knew that COVID was going to happen. For whatever reason, He allowed it to happen. He's sovereign over it and over all things. And so we can faithfully walk with Him through it. We can trust Him for our daily bread because in His providence, the Lord is doing things we can't even begin to think about. We can't even imagine all that the Lord is accomplishing in these days. He's got a long history of doing just that. And so along the way, we follow him. And we we look to those mile markers where he shows us what he's doing and how he's still following us. Or Sorry, how we're still following him. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. This passage that seems to be about David, but is really about the Father. That he's providentially working in this world to bring about his ends, and his ends are good. Now we also see the wisdom of God in this passage. And it's shown in how he selects his king, and in what he values in a person. Samuel arrives on the scene and he calls the elders in the house of Jesse to consecrate themselves to worship the Lord. The elders want assurance that everything is okay. Because let's face it, in the history of Israel, when a prophet showed up in your town, it usually meant that you've been sinning like crazy and that he'd come to call you to account. Samuel assures them that he has come peaceably and that they are to join him in worship. The people gather and Samuel begins to look at the sons of Jesse, knowing that one of them is to be the king. And he sees Jesse's eldest and he thinks, now here is a king. This is the spitting image of what a king should look like. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God shows Samuel that he sees different than the people do. He values different and better things than we do. Verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The man of God's choosing would be the one with a heart of faithfulness, a heart for the Lord. Faithfulness, as we have said over and over again, is what makes the difference between a godly king and a fallen one. The Lord has raised up this king himself. It is his doing, and this king will have a faithful heart. Jesse's seven eldest sons come by one by one, and none of them fit the bill. It gets to the point where Samuel turns to Jesse and he asks him, do you have any more sons? 
And it turns out, Jesse has one more. One more son. One whom Jesse deemed so inconsequential that he didn't even invite him to join his brothers at the sacrifice. The youngest is just the shepherd boy. No need to bother with him. Now we could hear that and wonder, how could Jesse value his son so little? It's because he's doing what people do. He's looking upon the outward, upon the way things work. The youngest isn't supposed to be in an authority over the older. The biggest and strongest is supposed to lead, not the quiet and the dutiful. When it comes to leaders, we want Superman, we don't want Clark Kent. We want the strapping commander, not the quiet shepherd boy. We want flash. We want sizzle. The Lord wants steak. See, Jesse here exemplifies the way we make judgments based on our values and ideals, even those they so often do not align with the Lord's. Sure enough, this inconsequential shepherd boy is called before Samuel and the Lord says, that's him. That's mine. Get up, anoint him, for this is he. This is the faithful leader that God desires for his people. No one would have chosen David. They left him alone in the field with the animals. No one would have chosen him. But he is the Lord's anointed. This is how it works so often with the Lord's anointed. You know how we know it? It's how it worked with Jesus. No one would have chosen him. No one would have thought that the son of Mary and Joseph, the carpenter boy from Nazareth, of all places, that backwater, podunk town, no one would have looked at him and said, Savior. Not until the Father revealed it. Nothing shows us the truth of that more than the manner in which Jesus is revealed to be the Savior. The prophet Isaiah tells us that our Lord Jesus would be marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was not the man we would choose. He didn't fit our image of a Messiah. He didn't look the part. And yet, it was in the moment when he looked least the part that his faithfulness was shown most clearly. Through what appeared to be defeat came great victory. All of us, every single one of us, had we been there, we would have looked at Jesus upon the cross and we would have assumed it was over, that he was not the chosen one, that he was not the Messiah, and yet he was faithful to the end and his resurrection announced for all time that he truly is the man of God's own choosing. The one with the perfect heart of faithfulness. That is what the Lord looks upon. The Lord sees the heart. 
And it is that vision that we should all be asking for. Not this simply, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. It goes way deeper than that. It's having the humility to acknowledge that we don't see how the Lord does. That we don't have His vision for His people. But that we need it to love as He does. To love what He does. To value what He values. To have faithfulness over flesh. Godliness over looking the part. And that brings us to our third and final lesson for today. We've seen the Lord's work in His providence and the Lord's wisdom in His vision looking upon the heart of men. Now we see the Lord's empowerment. Now what a great day to speak of the Lord empowering His people. For today we do celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in power. And that is the empowerment that came upon David as well. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit came upon David to empower him for the work of the Lord that was set before him. Because without the Spirit of God, none of it happens. Did you notice something in this passage? This passage about David? He never says a word. In fact, he's barely mentioned. doesn't open his mouth. He never says, sure, I'd love to be king. Pick me. Let me do it. No. Start to finish, it is the Lord's work. In his wisdom, the Lord worked to set apart David. And then he empowers David to do the work by God's own spirit. Start to finish. It is the Lord. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who accomplishes what must be done. And this is ever how it must be. For if we work under our own strength, or if we assume that we will choose the Lord without His first choosing and guiding us, then we will live futile lives. Without God's Spirit, none of us will have God's vision. None of us will have the Father's heart. None of us will see His gracious hand of providence. We need His empowering. We need His Spirit. The Lord chose David and the Lord empowered David. He did the same generations later at Pentecost where the disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what were they empowered to do? In Acts 2, the crowd of people in Jerusalem, they see the disciples burst out of the room where they've been in hiding, and they are speaking in tongues and telling the mighty works of God. And if we were to keep reading, we would hear of Peter standing and announcing by the power of the Spirit that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that the people are called to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus. 
and to be baptized. The Holy Spirit empowered them to do what they could never have done on their own. He empowered them to praise and proclaim Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Lord through His Holy Spirit. He empowers. He empowered David to live faithfully as king, enduring hardship and suffering that we can't even begin to imagine. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and remained with him to the end. The same is true for all who now call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has called his people to do his work in the world, a work we could never do on our own, but empowered by his spirit, it is a work that cannot and will not fail, not ever. It's the work of living faithfully with our God, having hearts shaped to seek after him and him alone. And as we do, we trust in his providence, his wisdom, to ensure that his son is praised and proclaimed until he shall come again in great power. David comes onto the scene and he doesn't say a word. It's perfect. His faithful heart submitted to the Lord receives the Lord's anointing because it turns out this isn't David's story really at all. It's the Lord's. And his story will be told. His will shall be done. And his people will be blessed for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your hand of providence, guiding and directing all things to your good and perfect will, leading to your good and perfect ends. Father, we long to see those ends. We long to see Jesus come again. But as we walk and we wait, Father, we pray that you would continue to empower us, helping us to live faithfully by your Spirit, that we might walk by faith and not by sight, trusting in your providential, gracious hand to provide, to secure, to watch over. And that you would move through your church. That we might be like those first disciples bursting out of our doors to praise and proclaim Jesus Christ to the end that many, countless many, would be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.